like to invite us to stand as we're able for uh, the reading of today's scripture. Uh, and today uh, we're going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26. Uh, the verses are going to be up here on the screen so you can follow along. Starting at verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what, about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. May the word of God speak to us today. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, uh, we started a short series of messages about what God might have to say about money called the rich life. And we want to ask what it means to live truly rich lives and what money has to do with it. And some of you might be aware of an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers uh, that started a few years ago and currently has uh, over 345,000 followers. It's, it's based on a very simple premise. Uh, they post pictures that popular preaches, preachers and uh, I said peaches, preachers and Christian leaders post of themselves on social media, but with the current price or resale value of the shoes and designer clothing that they're wearing. Uh, and usually accompanies this with some, you know, tongue-in-cheek commentary on the pastor's style. So let me share a few examples. Pastor Lusco brought out the YSL shearling fit for Passion 22. Like I like how it's spelled. That jacket costs almost $3,000. Pastor Mike Todd rocking the ultra-exclusive European release Off-White Jordan 1 Retail price on these was 190 plus a plane ticket to Europe. Last sale value, over $3,000. Pastor Troy Gramling mixing brands and preaching to friends in the Versace tee and Louis V boots. T-shirt, $775, and the boots, 2020. I don't know why they added the 20, right? And finally... Pastor John Gray stepping out something major in the evangelical Red Octobers. Uh, resale value, $5,611. If anyone's trying to figure out what kind of shoes I'm wearing, they're last season's Cole Haan wingtip Oxfords I got at Nordstrom Rack for less than $70. The creator of Preachers and Sneakers actually started the account as a joke 
among friends. But he unintentionally poked a rather sensitive sore spot for many Christians. And so the reactions have ranged from being defensive and angry to celebrating that someone is calling out those who preach in Jesus' name while wearing shoes that could cost up to several months of rent to, of, for some of the people that they're preaching to. And so the guy behind Preachers and Sneakers said his intention wasn't to judge or condemn, but to raise questions, to start a conversation. And I think it's a conversation worth having. For such a complex, multifaceted subject, in my opinion, we don't talk nearly enough about money in church. And maybe it's because there are a few things that are as awkward, complicated, and confusing to talk about in church as money. Except for maybe sex. Maybe we'll get to that. Not today, though. Often, when churches talk about money, uh, they tend to fall into one of two opposite errors. The prosperity gospel, the belief that God's will is always for true believers to enjoy financial and physical blessings. And on the opposite error, the austerity gospel, the belief that God's will is always for true believers to suffer and sacrifice so we can be more like Jesus. One completely ignores the reality of pain, suffering, inequity, and injustice in the world. And the other ignores the reality of freedom and joy and blessing in the Christian life. Both are harmful oversimplifications that are often based on just a few cherry-picked Bible verses out of context. So how should Christians, followers of Jesus, think about money? Or perhaps more importantly, how should we spend it? How much is too much to spend on a pair of shoes or a handbag or an article of clothing? What would Jesus wear? Or how much is too much to spend on a, on a smartphone or, or a gaming setup? Is it okay for Christians to drive a high-end luxury car? or go on expensive vacations? How do we define expensive, right? Is it okay to splurge on fine dining? If so, how often? Or how much should I give to the poor? If I give all I have to the poor, who's gonna give to me? And what about sending my kids to college or saving for retirement? Should I get life insurance, or should I just trust God? In my opinion, the answer is yes. If you're married or have children, trust God by getting life insurance while you're still young and healthy, uh, enough to lock in a lower premium. It's my money tip of the day. According to one study, about one in four Americans said that money is the thing that they think about most on a daily basis. And another one in four said that they think about work which is related to money. According to another survey, fights about finances are the second leading cause of divorce, the first being infidelity. 
And so it's safe to say that money is important to us. And we think about it a lot. Much of our lives and most of our decisions, many of our decisions, revolve around money. We rely on money for security. We equate having money with having happiness and success or self-worth. Many of us worry about money, and most of us generally want more of it. So it's a good thing Jesus had plenty to say about money. Let's listen to the word of our Lord from Matthew 19, 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Thanks be to God. Amen? I guess that settles it, right? That's awkward, right? Most of us don't know what to do with that. And to make things even more awkward, he also says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, who's he talking about? I mean, does he mean rich? Or does he mean rich, rich? Right? Does American middle class qualify? Could he be talking about us? Just for perspective, the median household annual income in Massachusetts is about $89,000. Massachusetts is a pretty wealthy state. However, according to howrichmi.org, uh, a single adult with an annual income of $58,000 is in the top 1% of the richest people in the global population. Maybe we don't feel rich, depends on who we're comparing ourselves to, but just the fact that we're sitting in this room with access to healthcare and internet and cell phone service and an unprecedented variety of food and products means we are living richer lives than the vast majority of humans who have ever lived. Hashtag blessed. But why does it feel like we never have enough. According to research, when people across cultures and income levels, they're asked, how much money do you need to feel like you have enough? They all tended to respond with about 20% more than whatever they had. And they defined rich as having about double. And so this explains how someone raking in $300,000 a year can still complain about not having enough. We tend to always feel like we need more. And no one feels rich because there's always someone richer. It's an endless pursuit. Research actually shows that up to about $75,000 a year give or take, depending on the cost of living, so in Massachusetts, that'd be more, money actually does have a significant impact on our happiness and life satisfaction. So it does matter. This makes sense because it's really difficult and stressful to not have our basic needs met. But once we have that, once we have what we need, Research shows that whatever money we have on top of that has diminishing returns. Less and less impact on our overall happiness 
and well-being. In fact, the constant focus on making more and more money can create more stress and cause us to neglect other priorities in our lives. In the words of the late notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. Maybe you're in school and you have negative income right now. But the fact that you have access to education and future opportunities still puts you among the most privileged people in the world. It's awkward because most of us are already rich or will be. And we just want to get richer. Yet Jesus said, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. That creates a bit of a dilemma, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying the ideal way to live faithfully as his follower is to sell our, all our possessions, give to the poor, and become poor ourselves? Maybe. Maybe not. Perhaps there's more to the story. And perhaps Jesus is talking about more than just money here. So in the passage that we just read earlier, Jesus encounters a man commonly referred to as the rich young ruler. And it's commonly assumed that he is a man of some position and privilege and prestige. And, you know, the kind of guy you'd want to bring home to mom. And verse 16 begins, Just then... A man came up to Jesus, and this is in public, right, because people are following him, and he asked, teacher, rabbi, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Essentially, he's asking, what do I have to do to be saved? But the Bible clearly tells us, right, if you've been around church long enough, you know, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. But he asks, what good things must I do to get eternal life? Sorry, bud. That's not how grace works. You can't do anything. It's a free gift. But nevertheless, the man asks, what good thing must I do? And in my view, he's not asking this out of this deep spiritual hunger. Rather, to me, it seems like he's trying to justify himself. Because he is a successful, put-together, good, upstanding guy. And maybe he thinks Jesus is going to commend him for his goodness, and faithfulness, and virtue. Maybe he thinks Jesus is going to be impressed by how God has obviously blessed him with such privilege and success. But as he so often does, Jesus answers the question with a question. And he says, why do you ask me about what is good? Why are you asking me? How would I know? There's only one who is good. And Jesus seems to be doing two things here. First, he, it seems like he's modeling humility, you know, sort of like, dude, watch and learn, right? And second, he seems to be saying only God is good. That means you're not him, right? Of course, the irony here is that the one who is good is Jesus, 
right? He's standing right there talking to him. This guy has no idea who he's talking to. And Jesus continues, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Right? If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So wait a minute. Taken out of context, it kind of sounds like Jesus is suggesting we can earn our way into eternal life by keeping the commandments. But if we understand it in context, I believe Jesus is saying this as a setup or an opening for a teaching moment. What we wish the rich young ruler said is something like this. I have meditated on the law, and I know I've fallen short. I know I have not kept the commandments in, in thought, word, and deed as I should. So, Rabbi, I don't know what to do. How can I be saved? But he doesn't. Jesus says, keep the commandments, and the rich young ruler says, which ones? Right? Jesus replied, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, etc. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the, and the man responds incredibly, all these I have kept. <laughs> what do I still lack? Right? This guy's flexing so hard right now, right? And, and I imagine Jesus must have looked this young, overconfident man in the eye, and he answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Here is this young man who has done everything he can to follow God. And yet Jesus seems to hold him to what seems like an even higher impossible standard. It's almost as if Jesus knew that he couldn't do it. And why would Jesus ask him to do something he knew he couldn't do? Despite how it seems, I don't think Jesus' real intention is to turn this man away or even to test his devotion. I believe he's teaching See, Jesus starts by saying, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfect, or in other words, if you still want to play this silly game of trying to be good enough for God, or to justify yourself, or if you still think you can be better than everyone else and earn eternal life on your own, then go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then come follow me. And the man walked away sad. Couldn't do it. Maybe it's the first time he ever felt like he failed at something. And I believe this is what Jesus is trying to teach him. Maybe this is the only way this man would ever grasp the deeper truth Jesus is pointing him to. And that's this. You don't have to be perfect. You need to be humble. You don't have to be perfect. You need to be humble. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the perfect, or the people who have it all together all the time, or who never mess up. 
He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Maybe some of us think that our being or doing good or going to church every Sunday or praying and reading our Bible every day or knowing a lot about theology or even serving and sacrificing is what makes God approve of us. What good thing do you do to get eternal life? The rich young ruler kept trying to bring something to God. He wanted to point to what he had or what he's done, but God's kingdom simply doesn't work that way. We can't earn what we already have. We can't work for what's given freely as a gift. We can only be humble and receive. Maybe walking away sad was a necessary part of this man's journey. Maybe it was necessary to bring him to a place where he can finally surrender his self-sufficiency and receive God's grace. And so maybe this is a different way that you've heard this story told. And so how do we know that this is what Jesus really meant? Look at the context. This passage is sandwiched right between two other passages that are all about God's undeserved grace. It's a grace sandwich, a grace triple-decker. Okay. I made that. That's Never mind. So verse 16 starts with the words, Just then. It's a device a storyteller might use to set the scene for something, right? Like, it was a cold and stormy night, and Pastor Danny was working late at BFIT. Just then, just then means that there's something happening that we need to pay attention to. So if we rewind the tape to the passage right before the man approaches Jesus, we see the scene of people bringing little children to Jesus for him to bless. But the disciples rebuke them. Why? Because in this culture, children were seen as unimportant. And here, the disciples were doing important things with important people. And these children were just slowing them down and getting in the way with their sticky little hands. But Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. These children who have no power, no influence, nothing to offer, the kingdom belongs to them. These children who may not always know what's right from wrong or even their left shoe from their right shoe, the kingdom belongs to them. Why? Because all they can do is receive. That's the way grace works. In the previous chapter, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As long as you keep trying to bring your goodness and earn your way in, you're never going to be, enter the kingdom. But children are the examples, the models, the teachers of what it means to be in God's kingdom because they understand grace. 
And so Jesus places his hands on these children. And as, just as he's leaving from that place, just then, we meet Mr. Rich Young Ruler, who's the complete opposite. Someone who's rich and powerful and has everything going for him. But he is the one who walks away sad from Jesus while the children run around screaming, trying to jump into Jesus' lap. In the very next chapter, other side of the sandwich, Jesus tells a parable about laborers working in a vineyard. Some worked the entire day, and some worked only half a day, and still some worked only for an hour. But when night came, the owner of the vineyard paid each of them the exact same wage. And this defies logic in our capitalistic society, right? It seems unfair. Shouldn't everyone get paid according to how much they worked, how, what they did? Our default mindset is that we get what we deserve. But God's kingdom economy of grace doesn't work that way. It's a gift economy, not an exchange economy. I believe Jesus doesn't really care about the young man's money. I believe Jesus cares about him. It's not about the money. It's about grace. However, Jesus does use this opportunity to offer some insight about money, too. Money isn't the main point, but it's still important. He says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were baffled by this. If this guy, in fine clothes, with noble pedigree and upbringing, a leader in the community, can't save himself, then what chance do any of us have? And their response reveals the very same worldly biases so many of us have too. In their time, riches were seen as a sign of God's favor and blessing. If you were wealthy, it meant you were doing something right. If you were poor, people assumed there must be a reason. And things haven't changed much since then. It's kind of the way the world works. Rich, good. Poor, bad. Don't we operate this way? Judging and evaluating ourselves and others based on what kind of job or degrees or income they have, what kind of house they live in, what kind of car they drive. You might meet someone and not think much of them until you hear how much money they make. Then you suddenly find them all of a sudden very interesting. Maybe you feel a confidence boost when you're wearing trendy, expensive clothing or secretly look down on others who might dress more practically. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, describing our new life in Christ, he says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. But if we're being honest, isn't that what so many of us do all the time? 
There's a reason why Jesus says it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And it's not just because, you know, we're greedy. Money is not the problem. Riches can be used for great good. Not every rich person in the Bible is told to give everything away. Zacchaeus in Luke 9, 19 made his money as an extortionist, but when he repents and declares that he's going to give half his possessions to the poor, Jesus welcomes him, but he doesn't tell him to give away the other half. Right? Many women in the Bible, like Joanna and Lydia, supported Jesus and Paul's ministries with their wealth and their hospitality. And as we heard last week, in 1 Timothy, Paul instructs the rich to do good, be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. He doesn't seem to require them to impoverish themselves. So having money itself is not the problem. The problem is with the effect money can have on us. Because money is about power, safety, control, and comfort. And these things are not bad in and of themselves. They're natural human desires, but they can also be seductive. We need to be aware that the money we pursue to keep ourselves safe and secure can actually put us in spiritual danger. It can skew the way we see ourselves and others. Poverty comes with its own set of temptations. But the difference is, none of us are trying to become poor. A number of years ago, I needed to travel overseas unexpectedly for a, a family emergency. And thanks to a combination of luck and some generous people with miles, I got on a last-minute flight to Korea, but in business class. And it was my first time, and I got to admit, it was so nice. I didn't have to wait by the gate with the rest of the riffraff. You know? I got to relax in a comfortable lounge with free food. And as I boarded the plane before everyone else, I looked back at the long line of economy class people waiting to board. You know, I kind of felt sorry for them. And once I got on the plane, I was greeted by a smiling attendant with a glass of champagne as I settled into my little mini apartment, you know, and put on my complimentary slippers. And I could see the economy class passengers boarding right behind me, right? And they're separated by a curtain, right? And they're piling into their tiny seats, bracing themselves for this long flight ahead while I played with the buttons that reclined my seat into a lie flat bed. I realized, oh my God, something was happening to me. I didn't even notice at first. Mind you, I wasn't even in the first class cabin. It was just business class. But as I sat there, I realized, wow, I felt great. Not just great. I felt important. Maybe a little more important than those economy class passengers back there. I felt powerful. And of course I did. I felt, I mean, the whole experience is designed to make you feel special and powerful. And I realized, ah, this is how it happens. I started to see myself as different from those other people, even better than 
Even though I literally did nothing, and, and everything I received was a gift, but feeling superior to others is like a drug. And that's just one of the ways money can mess with our brains. Being rich can feed our sense of entitlement. It is easier for the rich to believe they're better or literally worth more than others. And it's not difficult to see what other dangerous lines of thinking that can, that can lead to. It can lead to the disregard and dehumanization of others. It can tempt us to protect our own power and privilege, even if it means competing with and pushing others down to do it. At worst, it can lead to oppression and the exploitation of others. And it can literally turn us into jerks. And this is from an article in The Atlantic. Quote, researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, have discovered that people in high-end cars are more likely to pull some of the most irritating driving maneuvers on the road and generally behave like jerks. In other words, watch out for those Mercedes on the road, friends, right? A more recent study verified this finding with an even crazier claim. I don't know how they come up, came up with this. For every $1,000 increase in a car's price, the odds of that driver yielding to a pedestrian in a crosswalk decrease by 3%. That's crazy. <laughs> So be careful. Beware. Money can mess us up. Ultimately, it's easier for the rich to believe we don't have any need for God. Being rich encourages our sense of self-sufficiency and independence from God and from others. When we're used to just taking care of things on our own, having the humility to receive from others or admit our weakness and vulnerability might not come as easily, like our friend the rich young ruler. It would seem that those who are rich in this world are at a disadvantage when it comes to receiving God's kingdom. And that should give every single one of us here pause. The amazing thing about God's upside-down kingdom is this. God loves everyone. But the poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the marginalized, the homeless, the refugee, and the hopeless sinners get God's special attention. It turns out that in God's kingdom, the have-nots have the advantage when it comes to knowing God's heart and receiving God's grace. That's why Jesus says many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So how can a bunch of materialistic young rich rulers like us enter God's kingdom? Jesus says with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We don't know what happened to the rich young ruler. Perhaps later in life, after some stumbling and following, he learned some wisdom. And he realized that maybe he wasn't as perfect as he thought. And, and maybe his eyes were opened 
to the grace of God. Maybe he did sell his possessions and give generously to the poor. With God, all things are possible. How can we be young and rich and live in God's kingdom? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, famously wrote in a sermon, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. So how are we surrendering every facet of our lives to God, including the way that we handle our money? And Wesley's advice was, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So make money, make lots of it, but handle it responsibly and generously. It's simple, but it requires wisdom, not easy answers. And earlier I asked a bunch of questions like, how much should I spend on clothes? Or is it okay in, to indulge in fancy restaurants? Or travel to exotic places? Fly business class? I would love to again. I'm sorry. I don't know. But I do know your salvation or God's love for you does not depend on any of these things. And I know it's a little frustrating. I know it would be so much easier if someone were to just give us black and white answers. Like the rich young ruler, we want to know what good must I do? Just tell me what to do to be good. But Jesus doesn't give him an answer. Instead, he sends him off to wrestle with some pretty hard questions about himself. And so that's what I'm going to do today, too. I may not have the answers, but I do have a bunch of questions. And my hope is that they might be the beginnings of conversations that you're going to have with each other in your homes or over lunch, in your small groups, and of course, between you and God. And so with no judgment, why do you have so much stuff? If Jesus were to speak, no judgment, if Jesus were to speak to us, what might he ask us to give up or let go of in order to follow him? More question. Do you derive worth and identity from what you have, what you do, or even what you wear? Do you look down on those who are poor? Do you look up to those who are rich? How much of your time, energy, and attention gets consumed with matters related to money? Is it getting in the way of relationships, your mental health, or caring about the things Jesus cares about? Are you leaving any margin in your finances to be generous or help others in need? What would you need to change in order to be more engaged and invested in what God is doing in the world. I have more. Has worry about finances been burdening your mind and your soul? What would it mean for you to trust God and seek first his kingdom? If you are someone whom God has blessed with privilege, how might God be calling you to use your privilege to bless others and lift up those in need? For all of us, 
how is God calling us to respond to his grace today or in the week ahead? Perhaps we need to humble ourselves and let go of our self-sufficiency and pride so that we can receive God's grace anew or maybe even for the first time. Perhaps we need to simplify our overcrowded and overcomplicated lives so that we can enjoy the things that truly matter, which are usually free. Perhaps God is inviting us to go outside our comfort zones and build relationships with people in a different income bracket. Or maybe God is challenging you to do something truly radical through generous and sacrificial giving. I want to give us a few moments of silence to quiet our hearts and minds and to welcome the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And in a few, few moments, the Danny and the worship band will lead us in songs of response. So let's come to God in prayer. And that doesn't always mean talking lots and you know, throwing words at God. Sometimes it means listening and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak and convict us where we need to be convicted. So let's take some time now.